something we can take as a promise that you've made to us, that not only that, not only that you're going to be coming and taking us to heaven, that, but that you're going to be doing it before the great tribulation, that you're going to be taking us out to make it so that we don't have to be there. Now, Lord, I ask that you give us clarity and discernment as we're looking through what some would suggest are complicated matters. Um, because we know, Lord, that your word is your word is actually quite simple, though some things can get get kind of in the weeds as in regard to other people's theology. So, Lord, I ask that you help us and equip us to have a clarity of mind as we're looking at your word, but also to be able to navigate it, to be able to see exactly what it is that you want us to believe in and trust in, as you've made many good promises to us that we can claim. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. So we're going to be going back into the study of the rapture of the church. Um, so that being said, as a short introduction, because our uh, introduction was kind of taken up by us figuring out why the computer wasn't working, we're going to be looking back at our arguments for why Israel has to be in the tribulational period and why the church has to not be in the tribulational period. It's not a matter of um, ambiguity. It's not a matter of, well, they might be here, they might not be. There's a reason for the tribulational period, the time of Jacob's trouble. There is a purpose for the rapture. One concerns one group of people, one concerns a different group of people. So what we're kind of doing in in an almost backhanded way is we're showing a distinctiveness between the church and Israel. We do that by looking at their history, their purposes, the intrinsic distinctions between each group. And ultimately we're going to come to what I believe is the biblical understanding of the fact that the church and Israel are distinct entities. One has been promised that they will go through the tribulational period And one has been specifically promised that they will not. Obviously, the church is not going through the tribulation. We've, we spent quite a bit of time in Revelation 3 verse 10, um, which is very, very specific. Again, it's, it's not like we're taking one verse and developing a doctrine out of it. There are many verses, whether you're looking at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 verse 10, 5 verse 9 through 10, You're looking at Revelation 3, verse 10, um, and several other places that specifically say that we are not going to be part or be taking part or subjected to the tribulational period to the point where our theological opponents, we'll call them that, uh, will actually, they get very nitpicky over a verse or two to try to push their point. When we feel that the entirety of revealed scripture in the New Testament, specifically to the church, is clear saying that we're not going to be part of the trib. So the argument that we've been looking at is this basic argument that God isn't going to subject the nation of Israel to something the church isn't going to have to be in. Like this idea that they're basic, they're all people. I mean, they're Jews and Gentiles within the church. So why are we trying to take what God did in Ephesians chapter two and three, bringing them all into the same body and then separate them again? Like that's their basic argument. Because again, there are a lot of details involved in why we think that. And you learn that by looking at the details as you go through scripture. That being said, how do we answer that question? How do we answer that argument? 
there again, there, there's like a really, really, really long way of doing it. There's a what I would consider to be a normal way, which takes us quite a bit of time. And then there's a short answer. The short answer is church and Israel are distinct entities, and they've been promised different things. Israel has been promised that they're going to be going through the tribulational period. They've also been promised that not only are they going through it, but there's going to be something accomplished through them being in the trib. We're going to be looking at that a little bit today as we look at Israel's future in regard to the tribulational period. The purpose that is accomplished for Israel in the tribulational period doesn't need to happen to the church in any way that you look at it. There is absolutely no reason why the church would need to go in if you believe in the promises made to Israel about why they are going to be part of it. So we're going to unpack that quite a bit going forward. Now, the basic building blocks of how we unpack that is very simple. First, we look at who the nation of Israel is. To do that, we have to look at how they're structured as a nation. Now, the nation of Israel is structured as a separate people, a, a people separated from the mass of Gentile nations who are idolaters, who don't honor God, and they're separated as a distinct entity, as a almost a means to evangelize to those other nations. So God does a lot of things through them to go towards that point. But he also makes several promises to them. And these promises are the basis for why Israel has to go through the tribulational period. And more specifically, why Israel is distinct from the church when she enters the kingdom. Because again, the promises relating to the kingdom were specific to Israel. The blessings were less specific because the blessings of having the God of the universe ruling on a physical throne in Jerusalem would go to the entirety of earth, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. That's the significance of uh, Genesis 12 verses two through three, where it's talking about how all the people of the earth will be blessed. Now, as we're looking forward we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, the things that were promised within that covenant. We looked through the land covenant, the promises of the conditions in which the nation of Israel will be in when they took possession of the land. Next, we looked at the Davidic covenant, the promise of an eternal throne and a dynasty where a descendant, a specific descendant of David was going to be ruling on a physical throne in Jerusalem. Why is it in Jerusalem? Well, that's where David's throne was. And it's a promise of his throne continuing on through the generations. We looked at the new covenant, the promise of a new heart, a new spirit within them. Um, and all of these promises that are related to the entirety of the nation of Israel being regenerated. There's never been a point where the entirety of the nation's been regenerated. Now, some people look at that and they um, they do what we call heresy <laughs> and they essentially say, well, all Jews are going to be saved. So why would we even evangelize to the Jews? It says it specifically, all Jews will be saved. Um, it, as we looked at all Jews at that point in time will be saved. Again, that's not necessarily a promise that all Jews before that who didn't trust in Jesus and the sacrifice he made for their sins on the cross would also be saved because obviously there is a condition for salvation just like how Jesus died for the whole world. The price that he paid for the whole world is in effect. The fact of liberation for an individual sinner doesn't come into play 
until the condition has been met, though the sacrifice was made on their behalf. It's like, it's a similar concept to the new covenant. But in any case, as you look at them actually taking possession of that kingdom, it's important to understand what's known as the Mosaic covenant, which is a promise of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It's uh, formulated by this idea of if you obey, then like an if then statement for the covenant. So when (laughs) in the very short amount of time that they actually list them, when the Jews were to obey, they were to receive physical blessings. They were to see their land blessed in a very material sense with rain on their crops, among other things. And when they disobeyed, they were promised a lot of things. But the most important that we're going to be looking at today is the fact of their scattering the fact that they were promised that they will be kicked out of the land. Because again, though the land is promised to them, the land ultimately belongs to God. And if they're not going to be obedient, they're not going to actually take part in that blessing that God has given them. So that being said, we looked last week at what's known as the election of Israel. Now, what does it mean for election? That You can kind of get in the weeds with that, but essentially it just means separated for service. And there were four general purposes in which Israel was separated for service. Um, first of all, she was the elect nation of God. She was separated from all the other nations. Next, she, restored, she recorded the revelation of God. We see that through the writing, starting with what Moses wrote, moving all the way towards the end of the New- Old Testament. We then see that they were to propagate the doctrine of the one true God. That is in contradistinction to what all the other nations were pushing with their polytheism and all of these other things. Um, Israel was the shining star, which was to provide all the other nations with the promise of a a single God who created the heavens and the earth, but also the future and the fact that he would judge any nation that was separate judge any nation that was in idolatry, that was violating the eternal standards of righteousness that God had imputed in every single person. Everyone knows what sin is. That being said, Israel was ultimately to also provide and produce the Messiah. And we know that she did that. Jesus was a Jew. That being said, what we were looking are at, what we were looking at last week are three different divisions which will finalize our observational outlook at the nation of Israel. First, we looked at Israel's failure as a nation. Um, We know this because one of the purposes of the law was to show that Israel could not follow the law perfectly. That was one of the intrinsic purposes of the law. It showed them why they needed a savior. Um, Next, we were and are going to be looking at this idea of Israel's judgment. So what happens when they don't follow the law? What happens when they disobey the Lord? And then finally, their restoration. So we're going to be looking at the judgment first. So that being said, we're actually going to finish the last line, which is that when the Messiah came, they rejected him because that's actually the lead into their judgment that we're actually privy to today. Now, just as a way of reminder, okay, the kingdom is something that every single one of the unconditional promises will find their fulfillment in. And so they had the opportunity to see those things coming into fruition. And they chose to reject Jesus in light of that. Um, Then there were several reasons for that rejection that we're not going to be getting into. I welcome you to revisit Mike's study on the subject. We were in, I think it was over 70, (laughs) 70 something weeks where we were looking at the kingdom and it's very detailed. So 
Um, he talked a lot about Matthew 12 and Matthew 13 in the midst of that study. We, this morning, are going to be turning, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. And that's where we're going to begin our observational outlook on the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah for Israel. Now, there were many other portions and times when the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus prior to this. There were several instances where they rejected his teaching after, but this is probably the most significant. So starting in verse 22, we're going to be reading all the way down to verse 37. It says in Matthew chapter 12, then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw and all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any kingdom or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Awkward. <laughs> Moving on. He says, for this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Super important. That statement. Because that is the hinge point and the basis for what follows. That, that part I wasn't reading for those of you not holding a Bible right now. Um, moving on. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. And he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure that is good or what is good. And the evil man brings out his evil treasure that is bad. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall be given an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Because again, what were they actually doing here? By way of reminder, they weren't just saying, oh, He's probably not the Messiah. This is our excuse for it. Because what were the people doing? I'm not talking about the Pharisees. What were the people who were watching doing? They were looking towards the Jewish leadership to try to actually discern what they were seeing. Because to them, I mean, the, the Pharisees had been teaching the conditions of what the Messiah would be doing leading up to this point. So they were familiar that the way the Pharisees cast out the demons is they would ask the demon its name and then they would cast it out. You can't do that if the demon is infecting someone who is a mute, who cannot speak. So it was just looked at as, as a physical impossibility that someone like the Messiah, the son of God, would have to be able to do. That being said, they saw that and they're like, well, this is obvious. This seems like the Messiah to me. What do you think? And so the 
Jewish leadership who were present there were essentially giving an excuse to try to make it so that they could diffuse the situation so that the people didn't immediately follow him. So likewise, when they said, oh, you're basically just casting this demon out by the power of the devil, they were essentially blaspheming the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. We, we learn about later, looking forward in the chapter, that the consequence for this, for blaspheming the Holy Spirit, was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And that at this point, it became inevitable. That being said, let's turn our Bibles to John 11. I feel like John 11 definitely helps push this point forward. So John 11, uh, verses 38 through 57. It's kind of a lot, but um, it's incredibly useful as we're looking through this. So 11, starting in verse 38. It says, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved, moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and the stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone, Martha. The sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come away and take both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Because again, they, I mean, it's, it's actually sad when you, when you read it because they totally, they both intentionally misunderstood who Jesus was but they also knew the ramifications of what he was doing because through his miracles, he certified that he was who he said he was. That was the purpose of signs. People didn't come around the nation and call dead men out of tombs to walk. Um, they, that's not something that happened. These are specific miracles that were done to validate who Jesus was. 
But what you'll notice is that they rejected him. And that's, again, the most sad portion of this entire failure of Israel as a nation. It's more sad than, sadly, what they were doing in the time of Ezekiel. It's more sad than them boiling their children alive to Molech, a foreign god. Um, Because ultimately what they were doing is they were saying, no, we don't want this. What they really wanted is they didn't want the position they had under the Romans, their leadership. They didn't want to rock the boat in that respect. And they knew that if Jesus were to be king, the Romans would have killed him. The Romans would have punished them as a nation. And so in large respect, they understood that. They were wise enough to know that was what was going to happen. Now, I mean, God is the God of, I don't want to say contingencies because people get upset about that because they, it almost implies to some people, like especially in the, uh, uh, the Calvinist camp, that God has plan Bs. We don't believe that either. Um, but what we do believe is that people make choices on a daily basis. Some of them are really bad. Um, but had they accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the Romans probably still would have killed them for sins he didn't commit. And he still would have died for the sins of the world. So again, there, there's still a way to get around that. This, he genuinely was offering the kingdom, even in the midst of the fact that he as an omniscient God knew that they would reject it. So Israel's failure revolved and found its peak at this point when they rejected the king of God's own choosing. Moving on, what is the, uh, what is the consequence for that? Because there are consequences for every action. And it says in my notes in Israel's judgment, this resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and their eventual national dispersion. So if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, that's where we're going to be looking at next. And I realize that this, this does take us time to go through. And it's important to kind of keep the general picture of why we're looking at these scriptures in mind as we're, as we're looking at this. Because ultimately, when we're trying to figure out why Israel is going through the trib and why the church is not, we have to keep in mind what Israel actually did. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. Maybe not on an individual level. There were many people within the, the Jewish nation that believed in Jesus, both from prior to that point till after Pentecost. There were many who believed because, again, the church is made out of two distinct groups. It's made out of Gentiles and it's made out of believing Jews. They don't lose their Jewishness just because they're in the church, but we don't have to jump through any hoops to proselytize ourselves to become part of the church. We, can, we come to the Lord by faith, and we can come directly and boldly to the throne of grace at, grace at that. So Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41, all the way to 44. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come to you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Because ultimately that was the crime that they had committed. They did not recognize, though they had all the tools, though they had all the information, though they had all the signs to know that this was the Messiah, they chose to reject him. It says, if you move to Matthew, um, I know I'm doing this quickly. It's faster for me because I have an app. Chapter 23, 
Um, and you look at <laughs> verses 29 through 36. That's what we're going to be reading. Um, woe to you. And Matthew 23 is where Jesus basically takes the Jewish leadership and runs them through a cheese grater um, leading into Matthew 24. So that's, that's kind of the context that we're looking at. He's, it's the most scathing rebuke of the Pharisees in the entirety of the book of Matthew. Only second to what we read in Matthew chapter 12. So it's Jesus says, Jesus speaking right now, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then and measure of the guilt, the, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you kill, you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Because again, it's this generation that Jesus is targeting. Well, why? I mean, why, why do they have to lay the blame of all of these righteous people that are killed? Because ultimately, what he's saying is you are of the same class of people that did all of these evil things, that murdered the prophets, that stoned those that Jesus had sent to them. Um, because again, that is what he is railing against them. Start reading a little bit farther, starting in verse 37. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Jerusalem, again, the nation of Israel, the leadership of Israel. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because again, he has now added a condition for the restoration. Even in the midst of this rebuke, as he's looking at this nation who failed, not just themselves, failed the people, failed the generations of the remnant of Israel who had died for the cause that God had sent them for. In the midst of that, all of that leading up to this point, the scathing rebuke of the entirety of Matthew 23 leading into this point, He's still, again, reminding them that there will be a restoration. And so that's kind of what we're, that's the lead in. That is, that's the judgment is the fact. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit farther, that they're going to be dispersed, that these people are going to have a lot of things happen to them that ultimately serve a purpose. Just like um, if my child decides to act in a way that I have already repetitively told them not to, they, they've picked the crime they can't pick the punishment, but the purpose of the punishment is not to punish the child. It is to invoke a response in the child. So God's purpose of disciplining, again, using that analogy, Israel, is to invoke a specific response. And we'll see that response in verse 39, later on at the end of the tribulational period, where it says, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you recognize me, Jesus, as your Messiah, you will not see me again. You will be separated from me. Now, 
In the meantime, there's a way for the Jews to be joined with him, though the nation at large is entirely separate from him. And they do that through faith, through coming to the Lord, trusting in his sacrifice, making that effective for their sins, becoming part of the body of Christ. And it is through believing Jews that we're actually going to see one of the greatest evangelistic efforts in the entirety of world history happened during the tribulational period. We'll be looking at that a little bit later. So the first step, having looked at the destruction of Jerusalem and their subsequent dispersion, we have to look at the flip side of that, which is that in order to start the kingdom, in order to have the Jews in Jerusalem, they have to be regathered. So again, there's a sad part of that too, because there are two regatherings that are still yet future to us right now. The first regathering is where they're going to be regathered for judgment, regathered in preparation for judgment. We, we see that right now as the nation, um, I forget the, the term, Kurt would know the term better than I would, where Jews are going back to their homeland. There are specific things within their law that make allowances for Jews to do that. Um, especially since the events of World War II. They want the Jews to go back to the homeland. Um, Sadly, ultimately, we know that it is while they're in the homeland that the events of the tribulation will happen. We know in Daniel chapter 9, 27, that they will make a covenant with the Antichrist. Can't make a covenant with him as a nation if you are not a nation. You cannot make a a covenant with people living in Jerusalem if they do not live in Jerusalem. So, Let's look at this idea of regathering for judgment. So if you could turn to Isaiah chapter 11, that's where we're going to be starting. Again, this turns out, this turns into a big sword drill by the time we're done with it. Um, But just use that and keep that, keep that in mind as we're moving forward is the great amount of information. The old Testament, the Bible has to say about these things. And that that's also why it would be, Um, If you study covenant theologians in relation to this issue, they would take every scripture in the Old Testament and read it through a lens of the New Testament. And as a result, they marginalize all of these promises, the specific promises of the kingdom. The greatest charge uh, covenant theology and reformed theologians bring against us in relation to the idea of the kingdom is, and it's nobody who knows anything about what dispensationalists believe will say this but it's still made often, which is that the, their argument is the only reason we believe in a millennial kingdom on this earth is because in Revelation chapter 20, it says it'll be a thousand years. Um, I don't know if y'all remember when Mike was teaching through the kingdom, but if my memory serves correctly, I would say the absolute shortest portion of his entire study was Revelation chapter 20. Because all the information we know about the condition of the kingdom, the socioeconomic condition the topographical changes on the earth, the new dynamic between people and animals and the condition of the Jews in the, in the kingdom. We learn all of that from the old Testament. So again, it's, it shouldn't make us mad to hear people arguing that because for the most part, they don't even know. Most of them don't know. Some of them are aware and they've just spiritualized them and they're trying to make it simpler for their audiences, but that's a subject for another day. 
So that being said, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, it says, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain, who will remain. Well, that's interesting. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shiner, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Again, Verse 12, he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Because again, it's promising that they're going to be regathered. Next verse, Ezekiel chapter 20, if you would turn there. We're going to be looking at verses starting in verse 32 all the way to verse 38. So again, Ezekiel 20 verses 32 through 38. It says, what comes into your mind will not come about. When you say we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the lands serving wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. And with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Again, the point is to, for them to know two points of this particular scripture. The first is to purge out the rebels, to purge out the unbelieving in the nation of Israel. And the second is ultimately what most of the points are, which is that they will know that he is the Lord in order for them to understand conceptually and intellectually that he is the God of their salvation. They ultimately have to reach a point where they understand that he is first Lord in his sovereignty, that they understand first that he is the God that regathered them in preparation for that judgment who subjected them to that judgment, who purged out the rebels and who would ultimately save them from complete annihilation, which is what would most likely happen if Jesus had not come at the end of the tribulational period. I know that sounds like, again, it's past tense relating to something that's future, but again, these things are so certain. There's not been a single prophecy in the entire Bible that was fulfilled allegorically. It's not a single one. Um, Somebody wants to have fun, they can try to find one in the live stream. But ultimately, not a single scripture or prophecy was fulfilled in a way that wasn't absolutely literal, using the plain sense of the meaning of the text. Not a single one. And if somebody mentions Joel chapter 2, I will slap them upside the head. Um, I'm not going to do that. We don't believe in violence most of the time. Um, um, we're, we're the church. We, we love people. So, um, but ultimately it's just, it just shows that they misunderstand how old Testament scriptures and verses are actually quoted in the new Testament. There are actually several times of fulfillments in the new Testament. Um, and the way that the inspired apostles use old Testament scriptures when they're talking about a fulfillment again, subject for another day.
Uh, we will finish our verses in Ezekiel really quick, and that's where we're going to wrap it up. And we'll look at this idea of two-thirds of the nation dying later on because it's good to start on a happy note when we do Sunday school. Um, so again, if you can move from Ezekiel chapter 20 just a little bit farther to chapter 22, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross. Therefore, behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. Again, he's gathering them for a purpose. The purpose is to purge out the rebels and to make a show showing them that he is in fact the Lord God. In Ezekiel chapter 36, that's where we're going to be looking at next. It says in chapter six, starting in verse 22, all the way to 24. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Because again, the purpose is to ultimately do what follows, which will happen through the tribulational period. When it says in verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And then relating to the new covenant at that point, as we studied very briefly, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it goes on from there. We'll be looking at that in my, I don't want to spoil my restoration slide. Um, but ultimately that's, that's the goal. That's what we're looking at. We're going to stretch just a little bit farther and look at the final verse that we're going to close today in Zephaniah chapter two, verses one through two. It says, gather yourselves together. Yes. Gather. O nation without shame before the decrees take effect. The day passes like the chafe before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you before the day of the Lord's angle comes upon you. Because ultimately that is it's, it's not a nice future. It's not looking good if you look at it from the scriptures. And it's not something we take joy in teaching about because ultimately that's their future. Their future is relating to their present state, which is that those who are not part of the church, those who have not submitted to the Lord through faith, trusting not in themselves, but in Jesus' sacrifice for their sakes, are part of this unbelieving nation at large. And we know in God's grace that he has not judged them um, apart from the already proclaimed judgments of them being under the sword of the Gentiles generation after generation, which you can see just looking at their history up until this point, the ultimate point is for them to be regathered, judged, and then ultimately, as we're going to be looking at next week, they're going to be restored. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your promise of restoration for your people, Israel. We thank you for the wonderful people in Israel that are part of our church, part of the, uh, the body of Christ, which is an international body of believers who have trusted in you, who, have, who are all going to the same place. Um, 
but also have the same purpose, though used very differently. Lord, I pray that you help us to live and to act within that purpose, that you remind us of our charge to spread the gospel, that you remind us of our charge to become sanctified on a moment by moment basis as we depend upon you. And Lord, as we're looking at these future things, I ask that you help us to keep an eternal perspective and that as we learn more about the future, that you would help us to make the better decisions in the present that reflect our knowledge of eternity and to have an eternal perspective. I pray for these things in Jesus name. Amen.